Hi, everybody. Thank you for tuning in to The Sun Also Rises radio show and podcast here on KPCG-FM. Hope you enjoy our new intro music there. We've been meaning to update that for quite some time and finally had the chance over the last couple of weeks to finish writing and recording it. But we'll start the episode today back in the year 1874, when a baby boy was born to a noble family in Oxfordshire, England. And as he grew into a child, he seemed to have everything a young boy could ask for. His room was built around a plank table, sporting thousands of little toy soldiers, where he would arrange momentous battles. He had a log house with a ditch surrounding it and functioning drawbridges, and so much more. Just because of the aristocratic station that he was born into, there was wealth and education and all kinds of privilege that were just handed to this boy. But there was something that was painfully absent in his life, and that was parental affection. Part of this was just because of the society that this boy was born into. The writer William Manchester wrote about the way parents of this era and of this social class viewed their children. He wrote, quote, Nurseries were rarely visited by upper-class parents then. Like popes granting audiences, they received their children at appointed times when the small ones, scrubbed and suitably dressed, presented themselves for inspection while their nannies reported on their deportment. So that was the custom at the time for parents of this social class. But for this particular boy, his parents usually didn't even engage in these brief token meetings. They were just too busy. The boy's father was a famous politician. He became the youngest chancellor of exchequer that Britain had had in over a hundred years. So his life was devoted to his political career at times, and even more often, apparently, to Britain's upper-class social scene. So this man had very little interest in his son, and seemed to actually view the boy as a big disappointment most of the time. The boy really revered his father as a great statesman and a tremendously important political figure and, you know, just as a great man. But the feelings of respect and affection were far from reciprocated. The son later wrote that during his childhood, his dad treated him as a, quote, wayward and untrustworthy child. That might seem like the kind of statement that a son could write about his father that's a bit of an exaggeration, you know, a bit of playing the victim. But the evidence shows that, if anything, this was an understatement. When this boy was just seven, he was sent off to a series of boarding schools. And his time at these schools was often brutal for the boy because he had a lisp that caused many of his classmates to bully him. And he was also disliked by many of the schoolmasters. He was even caned by one sadistic headmaster on a couple of occasions until his back was just covered in welts. So this boy was often very lonely, and on top of that, he would go for months at a time with no visit from his father. There's one heartbreaking letter that this boy wrote to his father at age 14. At this time, he hadn't had a visit from his dad for a full year, 
So in this letter, he was begging for his father to come and visit him, but the records show that it was still another six months before a brief visit happened. So that was a total of 18 months during such important and difficult adolescent years that this boy just didn't see his father. When this boy was 19 years old, he was accepted into the prestigious Sandhurst Military College. Sandhurst wasn't as prestigious as the military school that his father had gone to, which was called the 60th Rifles, but it was still quite an honorable accomplishment, and the boy was, you know, just over the moon that he'd been accepted, and very hopeful that his dad would be proud of him for it. But when his dad heard the news, this is the letter that he wrote to his son. You should be ashamed of your slovenly, happy-go-lucky, harem-scarum style of work. Never have I received a really good report of your conduct from any headmaster or tutor. You've failed to get into the 60th Rifles, the finest regiment in the army. Do not think that I'm going to take the trouble of writing you long letters after every failure you commit and undergo. I no longer attach the slightest weight to anything you may say. So that's a, just a pretty shocking glimpse at what seems to be the general attitude of contempt that this boy's dad had toward him, pretty much from the beginning of the boy's life. Through his childhood and adolescence, the evidence shows that the boy's father barely spoke to him. And when he did, it was often just to unleash his rage on the child. So anyway, this boy clearly didn't receive much parental affection, or really any at all, from his dad. And sadly, the situation with his mom was not much better. This boy later wrote about his childhood view of his mother, saying, quote, She always seemed like a fairy princess, a radiant being possessed of limitless riches and power. She shone for me like the evening star. I loved her dearly but at a distance. End quote. He had to love his mother at a distance, because like his father, she was swept up in the demands of high society. His mother was, by all accounts, a great beauty. One portrayal of her, by Viscount Dabernon, describes her as, quote, a dark, lithe figure, appearing to be of another texture to those around her, radiant, translucent, intense, a diamond star in her hair her favorite ornament, its luster dimmed by the flashing glory of her eyes. So she was beautiful, and she seemed to use her appearance as a passport to travel at lightning speed through the whirl of high society. There she devoted herself to being just a star of their prestigious social circles. And I've got a statement here written by this boy's mom herself, which really shows what her priorities were during this boy's infancy and childhood. It says, quote, We seemed to live in a whirl of gaieties and excitement. Many were the delightful balls I went to, which lasted till five o'clock in the morning. We also have a couple of letters that the boy's mom wrote to his dad when he was a child. In one of them, she described just how annoying she found the boy's devotion to her. So you can see there why this boy eventually learned that he had to love his mom at a distance. 
I mentioned William Manchester earlier, and he writes about all the letters that this boy sent to his mom after he had been sent off to boarding school. So from ages um, 7 to 13 or so. And a few of the excerpts here say, quote, Come and see me soon, dear mama. Come and see me soon. Then another one says, I'm wondering when you are coming to see me. And then Manchester writes, But neither his mother nor his father found the trip convenient, so his pathetic pleas were unanswered. The least his mother could have done was reply to his letters. She seldom did. So, though the boy's mom wasn't openly hostile toward him like his father often was, in her case, it was more that she was just too preoccupied by her own pursuits to make much time for her son. His mother later told some of her friends that she basically ignored the boy until he grew older and became, quote, interesting. So it's clear that this boy didn't receive parental affection. It was glaringly absent from his childhood, but that void was filled, as best it could be, by another figure. This boy, as many of you listeners have probably figured out by now, was Winston Churchill, and the figure who provided him with the support and love and affection that he didn't receive from his parents was a person of a station and social class that doesn't typically receive much attention in history books. She was from a class of people that don't ordinarily alter the course of civilization. She was a nanny. The nanny's name was Elizabeth Ann Everest. And for the rest of the episode today, we aim to show that this devoted, compassionate, clear-thinking, and industrious woman played just a momentous role in helping Winston Churchill become the extraordinary man that he grew into. And we'll see that that means that every one of us alive today owes this woman, Elizabeth Everest, a considerable debt of gratitude. So, Mrs. Everest was from Kent. She called the area the Garden of England. And she came into Winston Churchill's life in 1874, when he was just one month old, and she was about 40. Everest was unmarried, but she was still called Mrs., Mrs. Elizabeth Everest, because this was an honorific often given to nannies at the time. One thing that was surprising to me to learn about Everest is just how much is recorded in the history books about her. Normally, a nanny would be relegated to just a footnote in the book about the famous person she looked after. But in William Manchester's excellent biography on Churchill, called The Last Lion, Volume 1. Everest is discussed in more than a dozen passages, many of them quite lengthy. Her first appearance comes long before Chapter 1 in the preamble, just about 16 pages in, uh, in this 900-page book. And then she keeps on making regular appearances throughout the early history of Churchill's life. And it's a similar situation in other Churchill biographies. And that wasn't because Elizabeth Everest was calling attention to herself or anything along those lines, but because the early history of Churchill is, in some fundamental ways, the history of Everest. 
She was Winston's primary emotional support for the first 15 years of his life or more. She taught him reading and writing and basic mathematics. So she was the main personality teaching him and helping him to navigate the vicissitudes of life. She was the main one shaping his personality. And for the young Churchill, life was often quite difficult. Not just because of the parental negligence he suffered or the bullying of his classmates and antagonism of his schoolmasters. That was all part of it. But he also had a frail constitution in his early years and was often sick for long stretches. And all of this opposition from every direction came even as the young Churchill had an unshakable conviction that he was sure to accomplish something important later in life. And as young Winston grew, and as his world widened, whatever struggle he was up against, he knew that he could talk to Elizabeth Everest about it. And he knew he could receive some comfort and some good counsel from her. In his autobiography, My Early Life, Churchill wrote, quote, My nurse was my confidant. Mrs. Everest it was who looked after me and tended all my wants. It was to her I poured out my many troubles. When Winston was very young, he would call her womb, which, with his speech troubles and just from being a young child, was apparently the closest he could get to saying woman. And this sobriquet stuck even after he grew older and more articulate. In many ways, womb, or Mrs. Everest, was what you could call the stereotypical British nanny of this era. She was cheerful and plump and religious. She was relentlessly optimistic. But in other ways, she seems to have been quite exceptional for someone of her station. She possessed wisdom, selflessness, and compassion that would really be exceptional in anyone. We'll hit on some of the specifics of what she passed along to young Churchill in just a moment. But first, we can get a bit more insight here into Winston's adoration for her. From looking at a time when he'd gotten terribly sick with bronchial infection, and then he was finally starting to recover, and he wanted Mrs. Everest to come and visit him, but Winston's doctor put a decisive halt to the idea. Writing to Winston's parents, the doctor said, quote, Mrs. Everest should not be allowed in the sick room today. Even the excitement of pleasure at seeing her might do Winston harm. So I'm not sure how sound the medical reasoning there is, but it shows that Winston had just a really deep love for Everest. And then there's another famous story about a time when Winston was away at the Harrow boarding school. And it had been months and months since either parent had visited him, if they ever even had come at all to this particular school. But one day, Mrs. Everest came to see him at Winston's specific request. And here's what Manchester writes about this. Schoolboys then were ashamed of their nannies. They would no sooner have invited one to Harrow than an upper-class American boy today would bring his teddy bear to his school. Winston not only asked Mrs. Everest to come, he paraded his old nurse, immensely fat and all smiles, down High Street, and then unashamedly kissed her in full view of his schoolmates. 
And then Manchester goes on to say that one of Winston's schoolmates later called that kiss one of the bravest acts he had ever seen. So it is clear that Winston had just a profound love for this woman who saved him from emotional starvation. And many of the long gushing letters that Everest wrote to Winston have been preserved. And they give us valuable insight into the love that she had for him and also into some of the specific wisdom that she imparted to him. There's one in which she gives him advice for how to dress for certain occasions. There's another where she tells him how to treat a toothache. Then there's another in which she asks Winston to watch out for the east wind, since it could, you know, imperil his health. And then there's one place where Everest cautions Winston about the danger of trying to get on moving trains. And there's all kinds of other lessons, too. In one letter, she warns him about the dangers of going into debt. That's something that Churchill, like his parents, struggled with for almost his whole life. And if he had heeded that counsel from Everest, he could have avoided a lot of financial stress. There's also one letter in which Everest taught Churchill about the risks of having friends who were a bad influence on him. She taught him to just be very careful about who he spent his time with. And then there's something else she taught him that William Manchester brings out. In one part of The Last Lion, Manchester's writing about uh, Churchill at a time when he was grown up and he was a politician, and he just emphasizes his concern at that time for the poor and just the stand that Churchill took against the desperate poverty of the lower classes. And he writes, quote, In the Edwardian era, Churchill and David Lloyd George were the most effective champions of the working class in the cabinet. And then he says, Manchester says, that this was something that Churchill had learned largely from his relationship with his nanny and just from spending time with her and from coming to see that she didn't have the means and the luxury that he and his parents had. So the poor of that era were impoverished to a degree that most in the U.S. and U.K. today would find hard to even imagine, including people who may think of themselves as poor. It's shocking, really, to study into how huge numbers of working-class Britons lived during that time. And Churchill came along, and he became, as Manchester wrote there, one of their most effective champions. He railed against what he called unbridled imperialists, who have no thought but to pile up armaments, taxation, and territory. And Churchill actively worked to help the destitute of the working class and to, you know, just minimize their exploitation. And that was all thanks in very large part to what he learned from Everest. One other lesson I'll mention is one that we learned from a letter that Winston wrote to his dad when he was just seven or eight years old. Young Winston discussed a walk that he had recently taken with Everest, and he wrote, quote, We saw a snake crawling about in the grass. I wanted to kill it, but Everest would not let me. So that's something, you know, simple enough, respecting animals and not being cruel to them or killing them for no reason. But it's a lesson that does not come naturally into a child's mind. It has to be taught. The current Prime Minister of the United Kingdom Boris Johnson, wrote a biography of Churchill that was published in 2014. 
And he said that from this snake incident and some other accounts that are along similar lines, it's clear that Mrs. Everest was the one who helped young Winston more than anyone else to lay the foundation of his upright character. Mr. Johnson wrote, Everest it was, I reckon, who helped him to that vast and generous moral sense. I think Mr. Johnson's conclusion there is considerably buttressed by the fact that Mrs. Everest was the one who taught young Churchill, as best she could, about faith in God. Not with direct instruction in many cases, but more often by example. He would see her praying and ask what she was doing, and she would give him explanations and pray out loud for him to listen. In Stephen Mansfield's Churchill biography, called Never Give In, he describes Everest as a low-church adherent who wanted no part in the ritual and the popish trappings of the Anglican church. And then he writes, But she was a passionate woman of prayer, and she taught young Winston well. It was from Everest's lips that Winston first heard passages of the King James Bible spoken, and she helped him memorize parts of it. And when they would take long walks together, she would teach him to sing certain hymns with her, and they would discuss men and women of the Bible. Shortly before Winston turned eight, Mrs. Everest was trying to teach him basic mathematics, and he hated the subject and wanted to just drop it for the day. And you get a bit of a glimpse into his understanding of Everest's devotion to her faith by the way he finally persuaded her to put the lesson away. And you also get a bit of a glimpse into Winston's sense of humor here. But he told her that if she kept hammering him with the math lesson, he would bow down and worship graven images. So it's, you know, it's irreverent, but it was obviously facetious. There's another account that gives us insight into the real respect that Winston had for Mrs. Everest's faith. This one happened when he was about 10 years old and attending school at Brighton. On one of his first days there, Winston and the other students were told to face the East as they recited the Apostles' Creed. But something about this didn't sit right with Winston, so he wouldn't abide it. He later wrote about this experience. He wrote, quote, I was sure Mrs. Everest would have considered this practice popish, and I conceived it my duty to testify against it. I therefore stood solidly to my front. So it's clear from that passage that young Winston really revered what Mrs. Everest taught him, and it's clear that it left a deep impression on him. In his teenage years, Churchill came to realize that Britain's colonial policy was noble and worth fighting for only as long as it was founded on what he called a higher reason, a moral force, the divine foundation of earthly power. End quote. Now, when Churchill was a young man in his late teens or early 20s, he did immerse himself in some of the rationalism that swept through that era. And some modern writers have tried to sort of freeze him in those years of youthful doubt. But later in his life, he did return to the Bible-based beliefs that Mrs. Everest had taught him. In 1932, when Churchill was in his late 50s, he wrote an essay on the life of Moses. 
And I'll just read a little bit from the ending of that essay. It says, quote, He is the God not only of Israel, but of all mankind who wish to serve him. A God not only of justice, but of mercy. A God not only of self-preservation and survival, but of pity, self-sacrifice, and ineffable love. So historians continue to debate how much of a role Christianity really played in Churchill's life, but it's clear that his faith did play a major role in his sense of mission. And it's clear that much of that influence came from Elizabeth Everest. So it isn't hard to see that Everest's emotional support for Churchill and the specific substance of what she taught him played a major role in shaping him into who he became. The British politician Viola Asketh wrote that in Churchill's solitary childhood and unhappy school days, Mrs. Everest was his comforter, his strength and stay, his one source of unfailing human understanding. She was the fireside at which he dried his tears and warmed his heart. She was the nightlight by his bed. She was security. In their book, God and Churchill, Jonathan Sandys and Wallace Hensley write, quote, Who put such moral steel in Churchill's heart and spine? If his parents were not strong spiritual ethical guides, who gave Churchill his principles? Elizabeth Everest, young Winston's nanny, was much more than a caregiver. She was a spiritual mentor whose simple and resolute faith would anchor the little boy. Her influence would prove to be lifelong. Mrs. Everest's role is major. William Manchester agrees with those assessments. He wrote, quote, Mrs. Everest's role in Winston's childhood cannot be overstated. So it's clear that Elizabeth Everest provided young Churchill with the support and love and affection that he didn't receive from his parents. And she played a momentous role in shaping him and helping Winston become the man that he grew into. And the reason why this matters is because the man that Churchill grew into was beyond extraordinary. Boris Johnson said Churchill had what the Greeks called megalopsychia, which means greatness of the soul. In God and Churchill, the authors summarize his greatness powerfully. They write, By the standard Churchill set, all political leaders since have been mere pygmies, with the possible exception of Margaret Thatcher and Ronald Reagan, yet even they pale in his shadow. No one else can touch Churchill for his vision, leadership, and persistence. Mr. Gerald Flurry is the host of the Key of David program here on KPCG, and he's written and spoken quite a lot over the years about the importance of Winston Churchill's leadership. In his booklet called Winston S. Churchill, the Watchman, Mr. Flurry writes, quote, There has probably never been a greater political watchman than Winston Churchill. His foresight saved the Western world from demise in World War II. That's a, just a very powerful statement there. Churchill took an uncompromising stand against evil at a time when no one else would. And as a result, as Mr. Flurry said there, Churchill saved the Western world from demise. And really it was God doing that through Churchill, as Mr. Flurry brings out in his booklet. 
But could Churchill have been used in that way if Everest hadn't shaped and taught him as she did? It's hard to see how he could have been used as he was had he not had Everest in his life. Mr. Fleury has also discussed the major role that Everest played in making Churchill the man that he became. This was in a message he delivered in July of 2017, and he said, quote, How did God make Churchill, or let's say interfere in his life, so much to make him great? How did he do that? Well, first of all, you have the nanny. End quote. So the nanny, Mrs. Everest, her influence was a huge factor in what made Churchill someone God could work through so powerfully. Mr. Fleury went on in that July 2017 message to explain that many of us don't come from ideal family situations, just as Churchill didn't. But that doesn't have to be an insurmountable obstacle for any of us any more than it was for Churchill. Mr. Fleury said, Let me tell you, you can be very successful. I don't care if you are an orphan. If God can do that with Winston Churchill, what can he do with you? For the next segment, about more that each of us can learn from this account, we're going to go to a man whose work you've probably seen if you've looked at the publications associated with KPCG-FM. His name is Reese Zollner, and he's a designer for the Philadelphia Trumpet and Royal Vision magazines and some other publications. So many of us have seen his work, but we may not have heard his voice very much. So I was excited when he agreed to come on the show for this episode. So now we'll go to Reese. All we really know about this lady is of her life as it revolves around Winston Churchill. She didn't seek any great things for herself, and she didn't even know how amazing the life of Winston Churchill would be. Could we do that? Could I? Would we be willing to languish at ground level and serve some kid or do some job we might think is beneath us? And if we did, maybe we would want to occasionally stick our nose in the air and throw up our hands and say, ta-da, look at me, I'm serving. We all love to be recognized for our service. But Elizabeth Everest wasn't really recognized for her service. She started serving Winston Churchill when he was just one month old. She was not serving Winston Churchill, savior of the free world. She wasn't serving the greatest leader of our time. She was serving Winston Churchill, baby. He was just a kid, a kid who needed help getting dressed, a rambunctious kid who had to be taught manners. The significance of what she did, it wasn't apparent at the time, but she was happy to serve the child, Winston Churchill. And she made a huge impact. Winston Churchill would later write after he read Gibbon's memoirs, When I read his reference to his old nurse, if there be any, as I trust there are some, who rejoice that I live, to that dear and excellent woman, their gratitude is due. I thought of Mrs. Everest, and it shall be her epitaph. That's what Winston Churchill said about this woman. He's even crediting his impact, and in some ways, his existence, to Mrs. Everest. When nearly every other adult in his childhood was cold and unaffectionate, she was warm and welcoming. When no one else had time for Winston... She would dote on him and give him the attention a child craves. She provided for the needs of, at that time, an unassuming child. Western civilization really ought to say, thank you, Mrs. Everest, for that act. 
but at the time of her death, she had no idea what sort of impact she would have, and she didn't seek glory for herself. The most powerful leaders are powerful servants. They don't seek the spotlight because the spotlight is not necessary to serve. As Christ said in Matthew 27, whosoever will be great among you, let him be your minister, and whoever will be chief among you, let him be your servant. God sees the inconspicuous acts of service, even the ones we don't think much of. There are opportunities to serve everywhere we look. We can't turn our nose up at any opportunities we might think are beneath us. We must do what needs to be done, then do the next thing that needs done, then do the next thing. There's no need to stop and say, look at me, or stop and wonder if you're really making a difference. God sees what you're doing. Your impact might not be apparent right away. It might not be apparent for years even, but who knows what kind of difference you could make. If you serve a child, who knows what that child will become? Who knows what he'll learn from your example? In 1892, when Winston was 17 years old and his brother Jack was 11, his parents were under financial strain and decided the family no longer needed or could afford Everest's services. So they decided to let her go. Winston heard about it and he was irate. So as a compromise, Everest was given a job at the London home of his grandmother, the Duchess of Marlborough. But after about two years, the Duchess was also under financial strain, and she fired Mrs. Everest. Everest had been with the Churchills 19 years at that time. She was almost 60 years old. Again, when Winston heard, he was furious. He accused his mom of being cruel and rather mean. Churchill said Everest should be given a modest pension, or at least be kept on until she could find some other job. But it was no use. Everest was out. She moved in with her sisters, who, along with some financial support from Winston, kept her from utter destitution. But in late June of 1895, Winston received a letter from one of Everest's sisters, saying Womb was very sick. She had peritonitis, and Churchill hurried to see her. She understood that her condition was serious, but her only concern when he arrived was for Winston. He'd come through the rain to see her, and she told him that he may get sick if he didn't get dried off. And so she wouldn't let him comfort her until he had spread his outerwear out to dry. She eventually slipped into a coma, and Churchill sat there at her side holding her hand. Womb, who had always been there for him when he was otherwise alone. Womb, who had taught him compassion and humility and so much more. Womb, who had shown him endless kindness. He kept holding her hand until 2.15 the next morning when she died. He later wrote, Death came very easily to her. She had lived such an innocent and loving life of service to others and held such a simple faith that she had no fears at all and did not seem to mind very much. And here's something really amazing. Churchill went on to write, She had been my dearest and most intimate friend during the whole of the 20 years I had lived. I shall never know such a friend again. That's incredible for a man 20 years old to say that his best friend 
his best friend in the whole world for his whole life, had been his nanny. What an amazing woman this was, and what a need she fulfilled for the man who would go on to save the world from Nazi darkness. Churchill ended up paying for Everest's headstone in the city of London Cemetery and Crematorium in Newham, and for many years he paid a local florist to keep the site clean. The stone there reads, Erected to the memory of Elizabeth Ann Everest, who died on July 3, 1895, aged 62 years, by Winston Spencer Churchill and his younger brother, John Spencer Churchill. Well, that brings us to the end of this episode of The Sun Also Rises. Thanks very much to Reese Zollner for his contribution today. Thanks also to all of you for listening today. And our email address is tsar at kpcg.fm if you'd like to send us comments or questions. And if you don't have a copy of Mr. Gerald Flurry's booklet, Winston S. Churchill, The Watchman, please take a look at our show notes for this episode to order a free copy of this remarkable booklet. Well, thanks again, and we'll leave you today with the words of Catherine Barnett. I think it only fair that we all pay a huge debt of gratitude to Mrs. Elizabeth Everest, whose love and affection for the boy in her care undoubtedly made him the man that he was and ultimately changed the course of history for the better. (laughs) 